though some people see things in a very open and bright and optimistic way and some people see things in a very kind of like dark and scary but that's the beauty of it one image can have two different reactions from two different um, viewers hey welcome to the show welcome to dental elements podcast this is the podcast for you in the dental profession where we talk things innovation collaboration and inspiration and a little instigation now and then I am your host today, always Cindy Rogers, and I am a dental hygienist turned consultant turned podcast host. Today on the show, our guest is Muhammad Kamal. He is a renowned pathologist, CEO, and founder of Omni Pathology Lab. With an impressive track record as a sought-after international educator, Dr. Kamal has shared his expertise with audiences worldwide. His commitment to advancing the field of pathology and his passion for education have earned him a well-deserved reputation as a trusted authority. So Dr. Kamal, thank you for joining us today. I was reading over your bio and you're a pathologist. I am. Yes. Wow. Uh, yeah. Th thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. So you're in Pasadena, California, next to the fire station. So if you hear any, any fire trucks, that's why, right? Yes. So as long as they're not coming to your building. And, exactly. And yes. if they do, you need just to get out and we'll keep and going on without you. Especially that I have a do not disturb sign on, on my door for recording this. So okay. now if they pay attention to it, right? Yeah. So hopefully they don't leave, leave without me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Leave him in there. He's busy. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure they will. Right. Yeah. So you're the founder and CEO at Omni Pathology Lab. Yes. And then an artist and an international educator. Yes. Yeah. So okay, do you want to tell us? Yeah. A more about so, that. So I am, as you mentioned, I am a pathologist. I um, got my medical degree. I was born in Washington, D.C., but I grew up in Egypt. And I got my medical degree at Cairo University. And I came to America and I uh, pursued my uh, medical career here. And I did a residency at Harvard UCLA. And I did a fellowship in GI pathology at, uh, at UCLA. And Immediately after I finished my training, I um, did some work with with the larger organizations. And at one point, I felt that uh, I needed to start my own lab. And I had a certain vision, things that I learned over the time. Um, you know, before pathology, I did some research in medical devices. And um, I was part of a small group that became a, a, a spinoff company so i had this entrepreneurial um spirit in me and i felt okay let me just try to do this and start my own lab and see if i can you know um you know em um, employ my my vision into a, a a medical organization so i started omnipathology the lab was uh, opened in 2009 and uh, from there uh, it was um, a, quite a, an experience because i said uh, I'm going to build it specimen by specimen. And that's exactly what we did. So and we kept growing, we kept adapting. And I think when COVID happened, we have a really great story about how we developed our COVID test. And it was we were one of the earlier labs that did a COVID PCR testing. And we developed our own test because there was shortage of supplies and, and, and the larger labs um, got a hold of the supply chain and we were left with basically the need to develop our own 
and we managed to do that. Uh, so our pathology story is quite nice and compelling. And of course, you know, GI pathology is one, but molecular testing for infectious diseases became our area. And we gained a lot of confidence when we developed our own COVID test. Uh, so that's the pathology part in brief. And then the art part came out of the fact that I have always appreciated the beauty in, in the pathology images. I was, um, I, as you mentioned, I teach and I have a lot of, um, in my library, a lot of digital images of uh, pathology slides that I use for teaching. And a friend of mine at one point looked at some of these pictures and she felt that this could be you know, good thing to decorate our walls with. And I just took that idea and I started to work with the art and uh, it evolved into something that uh, gives me a lot of satisfaction when somebody sees a picture of cells and they think that this is artistic and they admire it. And then they see things that I've never seen. It became like an abstract way to show uh, things and it uh, reflects. I always say that this art is about the viewer because it reflects their mood, uh, their mood, and their uh, view of things. So some people see things in a very open and bright and optimistic way, and some people see things in a very kind of like dark and scary. But that's the beauty of it. One image can have two different reactions from two different um, viewers. Wow, I would love, uh, I want to see some art. Do you have some hanging in your office or is that, I, that, I think I it's do, exciting. I love pathology. I, though, have, I actually do, the entire conference room is full of this uh, oh. microscopic imaging art. Um, and then um, and then I have hallways also that have this. And then I have, of course, my website, um, which I can share a link to. It's called Chemo Fine Art. Chemo Fine Art? Yeah, and Chemo is my nickname. In Egypt, if you're named uh, Mohammed, Nobody calls you Muhammad because everybody's called Muhammad. Oh, yeah. So you go by last name, and my last name is Kamal, and Kimo is the nickname for Kamal. So oh, just wow. like here, William is being called Bill. In Egypt, uh-huh. Kamal will be called Kimo. Nothing wow. to do with chemotherapy. <laughs> yeah, but maybe it kind of persuaded you to get it like. And it's K I M O. Yeah, maybe that got me into K I M O fine art, all one word.com. Okay, K I M O. Okay, and then do you sell art there? As well yeah yeah so if, yeah you said that there's a way that people can click and, and request information about the piece and okay. then so us infection control nerds could have i need some art on my back wall <laughs> oh no yeah we, that, that would would go very well actually yeah i'll check it but, out uh, yeah a lot okay, of it yeah and i do i see like in some art like you're saying or pathology or ultrasounds i see like faces and, and yes. like well you know but that's not a baby like what about like what's who's that man back there like you see faces and things and like that and then the yeah. yeah, I guess that would make sense. It's kind of what you're, yes, what you see. And so, so you developed your own COVID test. I mean, that's remarkable. Like I hear things that people, uh, innovations and stuff during COVID and during the need, but that's like, wow. So, so we, we worked with, um, before, way before COVID, um, uh, we worked with the marketing company and, uh, they, they, uh, they, you know, were helping us develop our brand. And um, the the team is extremely talented. Um, um, the team is called Gumas, if I may mention their name, the Gumas Marketing Agency. And what they uh, did is they interviewed us, they uh, interviewed some of our clients and looked at what we do and looked at our story and everything. And they came up with a tagline, which is omnipathology led by science, driven by service. And... Uh, I heard that tagline and the first 
time I heard it, it it did I didn't really connect with it right away, and it had a lot of convincing on their end to say, "No, this is really a good tagline," and uh, it grew on me. And then two years later, COVID happened, and then we found ourselves developing a COVID test and help the community. So it was really true representation of what we do. And it 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 reflected so well on my perception of, of the team that I work with and that they really saw that ahead. And uh, and what we did with our COVID test was unique because we said we're going to help our community. So one of the things that we did, if you recall, there was a big shutdown. Uh, when the, the lockdown, when, when they shut down all all. Uh, elective procedures, medical procedures. So a lot of our clients that typically do procedures and then send us biopsies, they were completely shut down in April and maybe part of May of 2020. So what we did is that we went to these doctors and said, when the shutdown is done and when you want to open, we will help you screen your patients and screen your staff so you can bring people and feel safe about having people coming into your environment. Uh, so a lot of them, we helped a lot of them getting back to business. And then um, we have also our executive director, uh, Michelle Herrera, what, what, she, what she did is just, she said, we need to really develop something to help schools open. So she um, um, basically started this school program where she started helping uh, developing the programs and provide resources for schools to be able to swab their students so that they can be back to school and we started doing that. So that helped a lot of our local schools get um, to open and to feel safe and to isolate positive patients and help you know other people from getting infected. Well, that's fantastic because you feel so helpless you know, during that situation. So to be able to do something and help people in that way. Yeah, and then once again, you had the name first before exactly. the product, so that you're onto something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that was, that's, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, thank you. And so, yeah, so when that was shut down, so luckily you had that because had you, were, you were shut yeah. down too, right? Like pathology so, and healthcare, uh, all those services, unfortunately, and, didn't get done. And here's what's really interesting about us, which is uh, a lot of people were closed, but we were open because we were working, developing the test. And then we envisioned that we're going to need people to run that test. So um, we're very proud that our organization, we did not lay off a single person during the shutdown. In fact, we started hiring people once things opened up. And once we started having the tests, we needed people to help with different parts in the lab, accessioning and processing and everything. So we we actually started hiring people. And uh, it was really a good, um, a good experience because I, in my medical career, I graduated medical school in 1989. And uh, I was telling people at the time that in all of this time, I'd never felt as fulfilled as a physician. I never felt fulfilled as much as I am, I was during the COVID time. Yeah, because you're helping right. kids and procedures and employing people and other people. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I was just talking to somebody, interviewing somebody else too, talking about it's not just about the success of your business, but it's the feeling of giving and helping and there's so much, you know, so much more fulfillment too that you're that you're doing with, with your work. I, I yeah, I mean because today we hear a lot about the Spanish flu that was 100 years ago, right? And I I tell people that it is conceivable that you become a grandparent and you would talk to your grandchildren about the COVID pandemic, just like what we people talk about the the the, the flu 
pandemic that happened last century. And um, and I, I would tell him that, you know, we're going to have really good stories to tell about that time. Right. Now that it's in hindsight, hopefully, mostly, yeah. and seeing pictures of people now with masks and things. And now it's a story that we live through. We live through history. So exactly. it's horrible, but in a way it's exciting, you know, like if you have to find the good stuff, you know, of course, it's mostly bad. And, and there's a lot of good. Yes. And the exciting part also is I think that the pandemic highlighted the need for medical technology and the need for a continuous support for medical technology, medical enterprises, medical organization, uh, science, science education. I feel that that probably the pandemic will find out that a lot of people decided to get into science uh, because of what they saw with the pandemic. Uh, losing a loved one, uh, something like that. That I think that this this would be a long lasting impact of the pandemic. Yeah, like open some, shed some light on some issues for sure that exactly. needed to be right let up. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, so with your with your pathology uh, with your yeah pathology lab. So as far as dentistry, do you, I see here that you uh, do the oral HPV tests. Too, yes. like for throat cancer and because yes. I know and you know as a hygienist and a dentistry um, that's something that we I look for you know every time I see a patient and uh, unfortunately I've lost a would-be father-in-law to um, to that you know throat yeah. cancer so it, it's and it's common and I've had other people that I know and close friends who's fathers have had it luckily they're okay but I've heard some you know I've heard how horrible it is and then with shut down and then not and having not having these tests and now we're seeing the backlash from that as well and so the importance of having these labs and having these pathologies done and how do you how do you, how do you work with that with the the tests with the uh the oral cancer tests and the so here's here's that here's how this came uh, along so we always had um hpv testing which is a pcr test uh, that we are offering to our GYN clients, you know, done on cervical pap smears. And um, years ago, I want to say maybe 2017 or 18, we started to hear from physicians um, asking us about uh, if we have an oral or oropharyngeal HPV test, that the cervical HPV test that we are running is FDA approved for the cervical sample. Um, it's not approved for anything else. It's only approved for cervical samples. But omnipathology uh, is designated as high-complexity laboratory. So a high-complexity laboratory can develop what they call lab-developed tests. You could take a test, you could develop your own test, which is exactly what we did with COVID, right? We developed our COVID test because we are uh, a high-complexity laboratory. So um, we have a, 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 a platform that runs a robust uh, HPV assay. Uh, so we said, okay, why don't we take that study, that assay, um, and validate it, validate it on an oropharyngeal sample. And the question here, oral versus oropharyngeal sample, and, and I'm just going to briefly say that they are both squamous cell carcinomas. Oral and um, oropharyngeal, which is throat, are both squamous cell carcinomas. 
so and they share risk factors, HPV, smoking, excessive alcohol consumption. All of these are risk factors for developing um, um, uh, cancer. So um, what we decided to do is that I felt that um, an oropharyngeal sample is going to really address the issue with the throat, with the throat cancer. Right, because you just go go to the back of the throat and and swab and you swab exactly the areas that most cancers are developing, tonsils and base of the tongue. Um, so we decided to do this. We ran this validation. Funny, we started actually working on that validation towards the end of COVID, and uh, we found that we had a really very good assay. Um, we have a sensitivity of ninety five point two percent, a specificity of one hundred percent. And um, and we said, okay, so we started marketing it. Now, as I was thinking strategically how to position that test, I just realized that dentists and dental hygienists have unparalleled access to, uh, to patients' throats. Nobody's looking at patients' throats as frequently as dentists and dental hygienists. If we wait for ENT doctors, people live their entire life without seeing an ENT doctor once, right? So, so I think the number one target we decided that should be dentists and dental hygienists. Um, we're going, of course, to the GYN doctors. We're going to the uh, general uh, practitioners, primary care physicians for that. But, uh, but I felt that this is a screening that is best performed in the dental practice. Um, so we started doing this, and it was interesting and exciting because we've never marketed anything to dentists. So we're learning the environment and learning about a lot of things in about the dental practice. But what's also interesting is that um, luckily we are we started to learn about the initiatives in the dental industry about you know the oral health is a gateway to overall health, that, that the link between the two and that they how now they want to look at patients as a whole. It's not just teeth. It's not just the the nice white smile, right? We want to basically look at the patient as a whole, which is really a, a, a no-brainer. If you could find a systemic disease that could be diagnosed by screening at a dental practice, people go to dentists once or twice a year, that is ideal. So now our biggest battle is to educate more and 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 basically get through the barriers. And I'll I'll talk to you about more, you know, later in this conversation about the barriers that we're facing. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. And so, yeah, so many times you go to the doctor, they don't look in your throat unless you go there for a sore throat. I mean, they have so much to look for. You know, I, yeah, you can't. Yeah, that that. And then the other thing is that if if you think about how throat cancer presents, most cases now are discovered when a patient has a lateral neck mass, which is a metastasis to a lymph node. That is way too late. This is beyond stage one, right? right. Uh, so we need to kind of really uh, become more proactive to identify, um, here's the part. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so um, so we need to we, um, uh, so if you think about the cancer and how it develops and it starts with a lateral neck mass, then that, that's too late. What we want to do is we want to come up with things that can allow us to proactively identify the patients that require this extensive screening so that we may be able to identify a premalignant lesion, precursor lesion. And when you remove that, 
then you could basically, you could significantly enhance the patient's um, um, chance of avoiding cancer down the road, right? Right. So how do you recommend as a, uh, as a hygienist or dentist and assistants who they're in there as well, what do you recommend? Do you recommend going over the health history and looking for identifying factors that, that they tell you about? I mean, some things they don't tell you about, but you can see. But. Excellent. So let's talk about the first barrier. The first barrier is having a conversation about lifestyle and sexual practices in a dental office. It's somewhat foreign, right? It's right. not a formal thing to do. However, as we talk to our patients about the diseases that we are trying to screen for, we are left with no choice but to say that there is a throat and an oral cancer that is HPV related, right? Mm -hmm. So today, uh, today we have uh, uh, more patients with HPV related throat cancer in America than women with cervical cancer, which cervical cancer is HPV related too. It kept the, the, the incidence of HPV-related throat cancer continued to rise until it surpassed the number of cases of cervical cancer, HPV-related cervical cancer. So now, when we talk to them about this, then it is HPV-related cancer, and HPV is the most common sexually transmitted disease in America. Then the conversation about sex and about lifestyle, all of that happened because not because we want to talk about it, because there is a disease that we're trying to scream for that is that that should be the way to open that dialogue. And I think with more education to the practitioner and uh, the patients, this becomes easier. So that's the main barrier is to start educating the patient about what we're screaming for. For example, um, as a dental hygienist, we, there is a lot of palpation of the neck. Right. That palpation is to do this. So if a patient is being told we're doing this because we want to screen for masses in the neck that could be, uh, you know, from the throat, then that will 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 start the conversation. OK, uh, so. If we if we get to that point, I think it becomes easier for the patients to understand why do we screen for HPV? So um, everything I will tell you about HPV in the throat. It's exactly the same case in the cervical canal. So, for example, um, and, and of course, the advantage and the reason cervical cancer has declined is because there is a, a, a quite effective screening program for cervical cancer with pap smears, HPV testing of the smear. And then if a patient is positive, there is a well-defined guideline what to do. You do a colposcopy, you look with a scope, and you take biopsies from any abnormal lesion. And there is a follow-up regime that is well established. We don't have that in throat cancer, right? So what we will do is that we think uh, both, so some of the resistance or the barriers, some people will say, why would I screen for HPV if it resolves on its own? Yes, a good percentage, the majority of HPV cases resolve on its own. But that's exactly the same thing that happens in the cervical canal. And you don't hear anybody in the GYN community saying that we don't need to screen for HPV because it resolves on its own. It resolves on its own in the cervix and in the throat. So, but the most important information here is that persistent HPV infection is linked to cancer development. So how are we going to identify patients with persistent HPV infection 
if we don't test for HPV, right? Right. So, so it's a very logical argument. So now what should happen is that the third barrier, people will say, what am I going to do with the positive patient? Am I going to refer everybody to an ENT doctor? I'm going to do this. I'm going to cause people to panic and concern, be concerned, right? So the thing, the reasonable approach would be that we we are testing because we want to identify the patients that have persistent HPV infection. So that means that after one positive, maybe we need to retest in six or 12 months. Maybe you want to do it again. Maybe somebody who's more concerned, somebody who has a relative that was um, that, that died or had throat cancer, that person could be immediately referred to an oral surgeon or an ENT doctor. And the ENT doctor would put that patient on a follow-up. They can screen them, can see them every year, just like what we do with a lot of other diseases. And then, yeah, breast cancer, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you scope. The ENT doctor can put a scope, and the scope can identify the early lesion, and you remove the early lesion. So now we are putting, first of all, is the patient selection. We're trying to select the patient's that require that extensive follow, right? We think that every patient in the dental practice needs a, a, a comprehensive exam. It's, it's a no-brainer. You, you have to look for oral and oropharyngeal, and you have to do that. But on top of that, if the patient is positive for HPV, then that patient needs to be retested. And if the patient is identified as having persistent HPV infection, then we can refer them to an ENT doctor. I think if we do this, we're probably going to find a lot of precursor lesions. Yeah. So how long does it usually uh, take care of itself or go away if it does? Like if you see it every six months, do you retest every yeah. six months or is that? Yeah. So people say under two years, usually it, it resolves, the cases that resolves on its own between, uh, between um, 18 and 24 months. So I feel that if you retest in six to 12 months, and if you want to add another test, if the patient is negative, add another test in. And that, but just whatever happens to, to identify the patient with a persistent infection. And I, I wouldn't be surprised also that patients could be, they can be positive, negative, and then they turn back positive. That That is possible too. And it happens in the cervical canal, right? Yeah. And so maybe also like some of their other risk factors. So if somebody has a lot of different factors, you'd probably refer them sooner than if it was so somebody that like, yeah, that Absolutely. otherwise doesn't have any. Right. And and also remember, um, uh, smokers are at higher risk of getting infected with HPV just because of the impact of smoking on, on, on right. the social surfaces, right? So that somebody with a weakened immunity, maybe someone who has gone through chemotherapy, someone who has uh, acquired immune deficiency, uh, diabetics, uh, you know, there's a whole list of patients that can be identified as people with compromised immune system. And those are the individuals that maybe, you know, need to be, you know, looked at more frequently. But none of this would happen without patient and practitioner education. Right. And so, uh, so what do you recommend besides screen screening? How, how do you recommend, do you have tools or that you use to screen or swabs or do you have kits yes. or do you lights or what yeah. do you recommend so that we, we can have, incorporate? We have, we have a kit and we have a page on our website. Our website is omnipathology.com. So we have a page for um, oropharyngeal HPV for patients and then for dental practitioners and healthcare providers. We have two separate pages, and in each one we have information needed to educate 
Um, so we have the kit itself is a swab and a tube that has preservative, just like the COVID uh, swab. The COVID swab used to go in the nose. This one, it's in the oropharynx. We have a video, of course, online uh, that shows the actual swabbing of the oropharynx. Um, so we have that, and and, and physicians, um, any practitioner can uh, reach out to us, and we ship them the kits, and then they they just swab the patients, fill out the requisition, and send it to us, um, and then we usually report it within twenty four hours. Okay. Uh and then, uh, if what what could you see physically if you don't if you're not doing a swab test, is there something that you could see physically uh, besides feel, before it gets to be bumps and lumps? That's interesting. So um, typically, um, a positive HPV patient will not show anything. Mm. They will not have symptoms, and they will not have any signs. There will not be any visible appearance to the HPV infection in the in the throat. That's uh, that's something about HPV. So until it's too late or until it's really yeah. progressed. And and actually, I, I did some um, uh, reading on, on the, um, there is something unique about uh, tonsils. This is the reason why most of these cancers develop in the tonsils. Uh, the tonsils has two features. One is that it's a place where you have transitional epithelium, which is epithelium transitioning from one type to another, very similar to the transitional zone in the cervical canal. The other thing that's unique to the tonsils is that the tonsils has invaginations on the surface, which are called the tonsillar crypts. So these invaginations is, is the surface is dipping inside. This gives access to the HPV uh, virus, which is actually specifically HPV 16. So we look for 14 high-risk HPV uh, types. And HPV, as you know, is over, there's over 100 types of HPV. Uh, our test covers 14 high-risk types, and this is exactly what we look for in the cervical, cervical canal. Um, and then and then what happens is HPV-16 is responsible for about 90 to 95% of HPV-related cancers. Uh, so HPV-16 is known to have this affinity to the basal layer, the invaginations in the in the surface in the mucosal surface allow gives access of the virus to that basal layer and that basal layer is where the this this is the dividing layer of um, of the mucosa and that's where cancer usually starts so uh, so it's something unique about the anatomy of the tonsils that allow it to become hard to harbor hpv virus hpv infection well, should i get my tonsils out <laughs> no <laughs> oh my god this is okay so here's uh, I can I can share with you some studies. The, 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 there has been studies. There have been studies about um, lower incidence of oropharyngeal cancer in individuals that had their tonsils removed when they were children. Wow. However, recent studies came and they said, well, but we don't really think that this would be a good effective technique to reduce the incidence of HPV. And I tend to agree with that. However, I can probably predict that the future will show studies where when somebody tests positive for HPV and they show to be to have a persistent HPV infection, I probably think that removing the tonsils in a patient like this could 
significantly improve that patient's chances of living cancer-free. I really think that there, the, 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 the days, the future will show this. There are no studies that addressed it like this. The, the, the recent studies say that this cannot be something to implement. And I agree, it shouldn't be implemented without knowing if you select the patients that are positive, no, persistently positive then I think that this would be a much smaller group and this group will probably benefit significantly from removing their tonsils. Yeah, I mean, if it's not preventative and if it can prevent cancer and it doesn't seem like there's a reason that we have to have tonsils, which I would think tonsils would help us fight off cancers myself, but geez. But but you see how this is so logical, like you yeah. uh, intuitively felt, oh, maybe we should remove tonsils. It is actually scientifically sound. As long as it's not going to, we're not going to go around and remove everybody's tonsils. Right. We're going to be doing it on a select group of patients. So people telling us, well, we don't know what to do with the positive HPV patients. So, yes, I agree. There are, the data are not there yet, but that could end up becoming a very logical way to do with patients that have persistent HPV infection. Yeah. Yeah. It makes total sense. I mean, yeah. if we do it because they have, you know, if they get like a ear infections a lot or, you know, yeah. tonsillitis a lot, we remove them. So yeah, definitely to prevent cancers. Right. Yeah. 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 And, uh, so what, what would prevent people from doing this? Is it, uh, super expensive to do a no, swab it, test it, or is it, it, it's, it's, it's just... an, it's an affordable test. It, it doesn't cost more than what COVID test cost. And it is, it is, if you compare that to, uh, I think the most recent studies saying that it costs about $140,000 for treatment of uh, oropharyngeal cancer. Uh, and that doesn't include lost wages to the patient. That, that's just like, you know, medical uh, cost is about $140,000 a year. Wow. Right? And you add to that the patient's lost income because they're out of work and they're being treated. It becomes a lot more. And the cost of that test being done once or twice a year is extremely insignificant compared to to that. Yeah. Okay. So we can go to your website and look as yes. a as healthcare yes. professionals and look for yes. Yes. that. Yeah, for sure. So I think most of it is getting the word out and educating people and exactly. getting some of these simple tests to yes. and, preventative tests to be done. And 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 promoting this proactive spirit, meaning that. Um, when we look at certain diseases that are screened, such as uh, colon cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer, all of these diseases, when they are uh, screened, they are screened because there is an existing screening guideline. Because throat cancer doesn't have an established guideline for screening, that does not mean that the medical and dental communities should sit and wait for those guidelines to descend. If something is cost-effective, scientifically sound, uh, achieves benefit to the patient, it should by all means be pursued. Right. Because we're not we're not talking about, we're not going to do an MRI that costs thousands of dollars or something like that. This is a swab. Yeah. And, and it's a PCR test. Technology is not expensive. And none of what we're doing is reinventing the wheel. We're really applying the same approach that cervical cancer, which is an HPV squamous cell carcinoma. Yeah. 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 So educating so, healthcare professionals, but also people, the public, because they can look yeah. for it or ask for it. 
and, and be proactive, be proactive because, uh, you know, if we learned anything from the pandemic is that a lot of people went online and started learning about things and started learning about how do I do this? How do I do that? And for people to go out and get a test that's uh, CVS and local pharmacy and, and to be proactive about learning about, you know, science and diseases and their health and wellness and all of that. It is a wellness, it is a wellness uh, approach. That, mm -hmm. that is really needed to be encouraged and we need to really be proactive about it. Yes, absolutely. And so do you, I say that you're, uh, you said you're an educator as well. Yes. Do you do yeah. a lectures and stuff on this or so, yes. where do you, where do you, where do you speak? I, I actually just presented um, at the California Dental Association. Okay. In Anaheim. I, uh, I give a lecture on, um, on oropharyngeal HPV. Um, I'm a GI pathologist uh, by by training, and I I love teaching. So I have given multiple lectures on uh, on GI pathology. I I love um, what I call a systematic approach to things. I'd like to um, you know help the pathologists become organized when they look at the slide. The slide has so many cells, and uh, when you develop a systematic approach where you're going to be looking for uh, things in order. And you're going to, once you identify a feature, an abnormality should trigger looking at different things. So it's just basically helping develop this flow chart in your, in your, uh, in your brain that allows you to address every possible uh, uh, diagnosis. And I really um, enjoy doing this a lot because I think it's a way to be organized. Um, as, as a scientist, when I did research before pathology, someone taught me, my, one of my first lessons as a bench scientist is your bench has to be organized because when your bench is organized, you can be very efficient and you eliminate uh, opportunities of errors, right? Right. It's the same thing in your brain. The brain has to be organized so you can just go through things systematically and you allow yourself to address every possible um, outcome. And the other thing that I like to teach about is biases. I uh, I am really into um, you know the biases and its impact on decision making. Mm. So I, I I did some reading on this and I came across a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, and it opened up a lot of things in my mind about pathology and the decisions we make in the pathology and in general in the medical community decisions are being made and how you try to eliminate biases. If you identify the bias, you have a higher chance not to fall into it. Mm. So it's called thinking fast and slow and slow. And so like not judging a book by its cover or a patient, you don't, I mean, you don't know what's somebody's. Right. Got, yeah. It, it, there's a lot of in, 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 in medicine in general, there is a lot of, um, a lot of opinions. You can have, um, a consensus conference where a group of pathologists are looking at one difficult case, right? Um, this is a, a, a perfect uh, opportunity for a, a wrong decision to be made because sometimes you have something called groupthink, mm -hmm. a dominant voice. Maybe the most experienced uh, pathologist would have a thought that could dominate the conversation and a good idea by a junior pathologist may never be spoken of because the person may be intimidated, right? 
okay. uh, dissenting opinion, right? So what needs to happen in an environment like this is that the leader of this consensus conference needs to basically be aware of this groupthink trap and allow every opinion to be heard. And the way to do it is that before the conference, we know which cases we're going to look at. The cases get distributed on the participants of that conference, and every person writes his or her own opinion about the given case anonymously. And they're given, they're given to the leader of this conference so that when they review the cases, they make sure that every opinion has been addressed. That allows the group to, to come up with a better idea, not the most dominant or most senior or most experienced opinion. It needs to be because experts can make mistakes. Yeah, and you want a lot of different eyes on exactly. there, not exactly. just, but, yeah. And the worst thing that could happen is that a good idea would never be mentioned because someone is being, someone is intimidated by 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 the, the environment. Or, yeah, like a, yeah, like a senior doctor, a pathologist. I mean, I've been in those situations where people just really look up to this one person and right. so and, nobody would ever question yeah. that person, but maybe sometimes you need to if there's... Yeah. I mean, so, so group yeah. group think is one is one of the biases, but there's a lot of other biases. There's something called hindsight bias, and there is there's a lot of uh, availability heuristics and things like that. That I feel you know the the patho my pathology community needs to be um, you know educated about. And I, I I gave a few lectures on on biases and decision making, and I think it resulted in a lot of you know, amazing conversations that uh, we all come out of uh, learning more and uh, helping our way uh, of practicing pathology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very important. And, and so not to be biased, but is there a certain uh, prevalence and age, like age or sex um, that we should be looking for? Yes, that's a great question. So um, well, number one, um, there was um, a point where it was an older age, like about about in their in their sixties. Uh, we're we're seeing more of age of throat cancer, and then there was a recent trend where it increased in the in the population of forties. Uh, um, but in general, most cases uh, of HPV related uh, cancer. Uh, throat cancer, um, eighty-two percent in men, eighteen percent in women. So there is a more um, men predominance in that. Uh, but the ages they keep they keep moving the age range. But at one point there was exclusively older patients in their sixty to sixty-nine, and now I think we're seeing more and more in patients in their forties. Okay, yeah, it's like sixties. I would think like drinking and smoking. You know, that was smoking right. was a big thing a while ago, and yes. Maybe now because younger people are vaping, which is just and, as bad, right? Yes, and, yeah, and and of course, you know, we, we in 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 1980, about 20 percent of of uh, throat cancer cases, only 20 percent were HPV related, and the majority were because of smoking. Mm -hmm. And now, gradually, HPV related cancer have increased, and now it's about 70 percent. Wow. Yeah. You wouldn't think that would happen. You think it would be decreasing over time and education. And Right. And, and you know, this yeah. is also a good, a good conversation because, you know, there are things that could be like practicing safe sex could also result in, in decreasing this because it's all, it's all, you know, oral genital sex 
that yeah. causes the HPV infection and, and maybe helping our patients understanding this and maybe helping our patients realizing that they, you know, there are ways to practice safe sex that could result in reducing the risk. Yeah. And being able to have that conversation yes. with them and, you know, educating them on, yeah. Yeah. on the importance. Yeah. And it falls along the line of the patient. Oral health is a gateway to overall health. Yes. Yeah. I'm a GI pathologist, so I've always wondered why isn't oral pathology part of the GI pathology training? It's not. <laughs> I know. And I, I, when I, yeah, I first got into hygiene school, that's the first part of our digestion or actually yes. nutrition. I was yes. surprised nutrition. We've had a lot of nutrition. It all starts right here. Yes, exactly. Your GI tract starts right here, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah. yet medical doctors start like where right here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it should also the the neck. Yeah, maybe in the neck. But I feel that, you know, oral pathology, if I have to redo my training, I would definitely spend time doing a lot more oral pathology. Yeah. If I knew, if I knew that I was gonna get into oral HPV testing. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today. I, yeah, you got so much to share. And do you have a lab back there, like a, a science lab? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm here at Omnipathology. The rest of this is my office, but the rest of it, there's like a huge lab, PCR instruments and pathology equipment and things like that. So oh, we have fun. A full, full lab here in Pasadena. Do you like do tours or let people come in and I would plant? love to do that. And actually one of my dreams is to uh, coordinate uh, for students because mm-hmm. a student can come in and take a tour of the lab. They get inspired about doing science, but when they see the art, they may feel that you could actually, there is a bridge between art and science. Yeah. And we want, we want the young generation to realize that there isn't anything that can stop a scientist from being an artist or stop an artist from being interested in science. Yeah. And it kind of goes together like music, art, science. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, yeah, it'd be fun if I'm ever in Pasadena, please come in and uh, take a look. Yeah. Yeah, please. And I, I want to thank you for your interest in, in our topics. And uh, I think that that as uh, more and more individuals in your in your domain, especially those who are out speaking in podcasts and things like that, this will give us uh, a way to communicate this really great cause about trying to fight uh, throat cancer, HPV-related throat cancer. Yes. And I do uh, talk about infectious diseases when I do infection control courses to dental professionals. So yeah, I'll, I'll throw this in there just as a yes. side note, get the word out. Fantastic. For sure. And if you're ever looking for any resources or anything like that, please feel free to to contact me. I'll be there. I'm yeah. And so it's omnipathologylab.com. Yeah. Omnipathology.com. Um, okay. Um, and I'll put that in the show notes and then on our website as well. Too, that was easy for people to find it. Yes. Okay, great. Thank Thank you so much for your time and for having me as a guest on your podcast. Thank you. Yeah. And I'd like to um, follow up. Hopefully I'll see you out there speaking somewhere and keep in touch. I will. will. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Oh my gosh. How exciting was that? How informative. I love science. Don't you love science? I just want to go to that lab and look at all the bacteria and all the pathologies, things growing. So cool. So hopefully everybody will take what he said to heart and do great oral examinations on your patients. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dental Elements Podcast. We truly appreciate your support and helping all these fine dental professionals share information with you, our listeners. And a very special thank you to Smile Makers for helping us make that happen. They are offering our listeners 
20% off of any order by using code DAP20. That's right, 20% off any order. So DAP20, smilemakers.com, check them out.